Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 201 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm happy to share with you a true group effort, an in-depth tasting and food pairing months in the making. I'm joined by former guest, author, and Baijo expert, Derek Sandhouse, as well as my friend, Brett Steigerwald, head distiller at Winden Distilling, makers of Lion Rum. With their powers combined, these two gentlemen put together a program where we could taste seven of the 12 officially recognized styles of Baijo alongside traditional Chinese dishes from the regions where they are produced. But before we traverse the trade routes, cultures, and culinary flavors of China, let's take a moment so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Ming River Pineapple Smash. To make it, you'll need 50 ml, or a little over an ounce and a half of Ming River Baijiu, 25 ml, or a little over three quarters of an ounce of lime juice, 15 ml, or about a half an ounce of simple or agave syrup, a handful of basil leaves, and a slice of pineapple. Muddle the basil and the pineapple in the bottom of a cocktail shaker, then add ice and your liquid ingredients. Shake vigorously for about 15 seconds, then double strain into a stemmed cocktail glass and enjoy. The combination of lime juice, basil, and pineapple juice in this cocktail produces one of my favorite colors in the cocktail world, an eerie yellow-green. Sometimes you'll see this in cocktails that contain sous, but in this case, it's achieved completely with natural ingredients that happen to perfectly complement the insanely tropical flavor profile of Ming River Baijiu. The other great thing about this drink is that it's simple, scalable, and can be made with just one bottle of Baijiu and a trip to the grocery store, fitting it nicely in with our past guest, Maggie Hoffman's approach to one bottle cocktails. So, now that you've got a juicy and refreshing smash to help you weather these last humid days of summer, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this blockbuster baijo pairing and Chinese food smorgasbord, some of the topics I discuss with my friends Brett Steigerwalt and Derek Sandhouse include the base grains, production methods, and flavor profiles of seven, count them, seven different baijo categories, including rice aroma, light aroma, Lao Baigan, Phoenix Aroma, Strong Aroma, Sauce Aroma, and Extra Strong Aroma. The relationship between Baijiu and food, both at a basic level and in the context of each different region and culinary tradition. How different Baijiu styles hack the very foreign-to-us-looking production method involving microbe-packed grain blocks called chu and giant steamers to create flavors and aromas that are vastly different from one another. We also talk about what a phoenix smells like, how various traditional spicy and numbing ingredients affect how Baijo tastes, why food and drink exploration is an important act of cultural ambassadorship, and much, much more. 
A few last things. First, this is a real roundtable experience. You're going to feel like you're right there at the table with us. There will be the click of chopsticks and the clink of glassware, but we worked hard to eliminate the extraneous eating noises. So if one slipped through, we apologize. Second, we're going to have a ton of resources and photos over on the show notes page that will feature both the bottles we enjoyed and some of the food that went with them. We'll also have links to Derek's books, Drunk in China, and Baijiu, The Essential Guide to Chinese Spirits. In addition, we'll have a link to our first interview with Derek, episode 152, where we get into all the Baijiu basics, including Chu, and all the other stuff you need to know about how it's made. So if you want a refresher course, I definitely recommend starting there. Finally, I need to throw a massive thank you out to Derek and his business partner, Bill, for sharing their expertise in this category, which helped Brett to source these bottles. All I did was push a couple buttons and accept a delivery from Uber Eats. So truly, hats off to these guys for making everything possible. With that, please enjoy this culinary travelogue and baijo tasting with Derek Sandhouse and Brett Steigerwald. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's fun to be here. It is the podcast. It is also the Kitchen Island where we have staged uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight bottles of Baijo here. And we are going to be pairing these with some specially selected dishes, courtesy of Panda Gourmet from right here in D.C. And uh, Derek Sandhouse, welcome back to the podcast. Can uh, you, you just uh, give us a quick 30 second bio on you so we know uh, a little bit about our guide here today? Sure. So I have written two books about Baijiu, uh, Baijiu, The Essential Guide to Chinese Spirits and Drunk in China. And in 2018, I co-founded Ming River Sichuan Baijiu, uh, which is kind of a crossover Baijiu brand for the international market. I like crossover Baijiu brands, just like those crossover vehicles that are getting really popular these days. Yeah, well, I mean, I see it as a very authentic, traditional um, Sichuanese strong aroma baijo, but um, it is marketed more to the bar world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we will definitely be tasting that here today. Uh, on the show notes page, we'll have a link to our previous interview with Derek, where we really got into the 101 of it, really broke down what baijo is and what makes it special. And so here we're doing a bit more of a 201, where we do a deep dive into some different varieties and, and different aromas. Uh, Brett Steigerwald, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, everyone. Brett Steigerwald. I'm the head distiller for Lion Rum in St. Michael's, Maryland. Been making rum for five years now and living the good life. Happy to be here. Love this podcast. So it's honored to finally be on it for yeah. once instead of just listening. I think you are probably my most guest deferred in that like we've done we've done so many things together and we continue to do so many weird projects together that it's uh, almost an aberration that I haven't had you on. But 201 is a perfect way. We're, we're starting a fresh batch of 100 episodes. So 201, we're starting off by correcting the ill of not having <laughs> Brett on the podcast to date. So we've got a lineup here in front of us. The first pairing uh, we have here is a uh, just sort of your standard wonton style dumpling, it looks like. And uh, Derek, why don't you tell us a little bit about the the bottle and and why we're starting here and, and what, uh, what we're going to be pairing with this wonton. Okay, so we had to get a little creative with the first course that we're doing because we're starting with a rice aroma baijiu that um, I believe is from Guangdong in China. Well, 
Let me see. It's it's called Mijo uh, Toe, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm not okay. So I'm going to back up a second. It says that it is from Taiwan. Right. Originally. This was the one that was from Taiwan, yeah, I believe. I, 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 when, Bill took, when Bill met me at Ocean down in uh, Chinatown in New York, uh, we just couldn't find one that was closest that we could find. Yeah, so this is like this is a rice aroma style baijiu. This is a style that does uh, come uh, historically from southeastern China, from Guangdong or Guangxi, but most of the export products you get in the U.S. tend to come from Guangdong. And... Uh, this style of baijiu, it tends to be lower ABV. It tends to be very mild. You get like a bit of that like ricey graininess. Um, I mean, it's very close in terms of how it's made and its flavor profile, like an awamori from Japan. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So it's like, yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, it's got a little slightly different fermentation process than the other baijos in that it's uh, fermented for a shorter period of time. There's a little bit of water added and sometimes they will... Um, do it in a two-step fermentation process where you start the sacrification, then you add some of the uh, chew, the the yeast Mm -hmm. culture, to kick it off. But it's light, mild, and the food from southeastern China tends to also be, like, pretty light, mild. Um, So we got a dumpling here. Um, It is uh, what they call a shui jiao in China, which is kind of northern, but, you know, you, you still get... Uh, the rough idea of pairing a dumpling with a delicate rice baijiu. So if you're a little bit behind on the production process with baijiu as a listener here, you're definitely going to want to go back to that other interview with Derek because we break down exactly what chu is. Um, We've got a lot to get through in this episode. So we're going to be focusing more on the aromas, the styles, the flavors, and the pairings. Um, But like I said, we'll definitely link to that episode in the show notes so that you can go back and and learn about the very... um, sort of different manufacturing process compared to what we think of, you know, if you've done a distillery tour here in the U S I can guarantee you that the, especially the fermentation, the the sacrification process is vastly different with Baijiu, which is what just the tip of the iceberg of what makes it so special to me. Um, So Derek, as I taste this and do the, do the little pairing over here, can you just give us the overview of how baijo is consumed with food in China. Like, uh, and, and I guess if there are any like traditions or rituals associated with that. Absolutely. So in China, baijo is always consumed with food. And this is because alcohol in like Chinese culinary philosophy has always been considered, you know, part of the meal, not, not just, you know, you have your food and drinks, like the drink is part of the world of food. So uh, the notion that you're going for with any kind of banquet is you want to have as many different dishes with as many different flavors and textures on the table so that they're all, you know, bringing something different to the table. And so with um, baijiu, baijiu is seen as a complementary flavor to the food. And that's why we're pairing... uh, types of food that you would find in the different regions where these baijiu would come from because the kind of flavor profile that developed over time in these regions is going to be one like perfectly suited to that particular food. It's sort of the cultural corollary to what grows together goes together. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, that was really nice. You know, it's just like a, it's like you're, you're pretty run of the mill pork dumpling. I mean, it's delicious because it's from Panda Gourmet, but I really get what you're saying of like the the baijiu, the rice aroma, 
uh, certainly compared to some of these bad boys that we're about to get into is yeah. very gentle and it almost um it's almost like a palate cleanser it's a, a sweet little palate cleanser compared to the the salty pork with the soya yeah you've got kind of this like little like light kind of like lemony like sweetness to it mm-hmm. that you get with the rice aroma and it goes really nice i think with like the ginger that you find in that that pork oh yeah brett how did you like it i thought it was i thought it was wonderful like you, you get you get all of that just the richness of the dumpling and then it, it's a perfect foil. It'll cut it, but also complement at the same time. I and found, like, I almost, I mean, this is just, again, because I don't have a lot of reference to go from here, but it reminded me of some of the, not not, not necessarily soju, but, like, uh, some of the sake notes that we had mm-hmm. last night when we were having some sake. Um, but, yeah, like, the, the rice flavor, um, also, like, kind of like the lemon note that you talk about, just really worked really well with the spices. Mm-hmm. And it almost reminded me a little bit of, like, the snops from... Yeah. Um, from the like the the rich savory fish that you would do with uh, an aquavit, oh, yeah. and it's Absolutely. sort of like the por- the richness yeah. of the pork. It just cuts it right there. So it's fun to be able to take something from China and be like, oh yeah, this reminds me of that Scandinavian thing. But we are going to reset, uh, and we'll be right back with the next pairing. And we are back. The dish that we are about to eat is Mongolian beef. And uh, Derek, why don't you tell us about the actually two Baijo varieties that we are, not varieties, two Baijo bottles from the same category that we're going to be tasting. Actually, they are technically different varieties. So uh, you're not wrong there. Um, so the first one we're going to try is what's called Jinmen Galion. This one is a Taiwanese baijo, but it is very much uh, from the light aroma baijo category, uh, particularly a style that originated in Beijing called Arguoto. And mm-hmm. this style of baijo tends to be like bottled at very, very high uh, proof. So this first one we're trying is 58% alcohol by volume. And then there's a very closely uh, related style called... Um, Oh, yeah, you've got a bottle yeah. of Beijing Arguoto there, too. Yeah, um, a very, very bad one. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you. The um, the Arguoto style does not have a great reputation in China. Mm-hmm. It's kind of considered like the, the Coca-Cola, like the mass-produced. You can get the light any, beer. Any convenience store for like a dollar a bottle. So, oh, God. Uh, it's... The, so, yeah, it's, it's a, it is like the rough-and-tumble working man's baijiao. And uh, Jinmen Galeong, the, the Taiwanese version of it, I find to be like, pretty good. I just nosed it, and that's what prompted me to run over to the liquor cabinet and grab that other bottle, because when I nosed that, it's just straight lighter fluid. And when I nosed this, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, this one's Seems pretty, pleasant. pretty nice, approachable. Um, but in the north of China, the Baijiu tends to be very strong in terms of how it's bottled. Um, so we've got like the first, we're starting with this light aroma that's uh, 58% alcohol by volume. That's not uncommon. It is quite cold in northern China, particularly in the winter. So this is something meant to warm you up a bit. And then the next one we have is what's called uh, Lao Bai Gan, or in the, the northern accent, uh, Lao Bai Gar. And this is uh, this comes from a city called Hengshui, which is in the Hebei province. And this this particular style is usually bottled much stronger than the one we have here. This is fifty two percent alcohol by volume, but in China, it's usually served at sixty seven percent alcohol by volume. So oh, yeah. just screaming, screaming hot. 
Um, these are both sorghum-based baijos. Uh, the like arguato style is normally made with like I think a bran-based, like a wheat mm. bran-based uh-huh. uh, chew, the fermentation agent, and Ooh. the 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 only real difference between this and the Lao Bai Gan style is the is the chew, where the Lao Bai Gan is using I, I believe a wheat chew as opposed okay. to a uh, wheat bran chew. The food in northern China that we're pairing with today, we're going with a dish called Mongolian beef because this is a more uh, like salty, savory beef dish with a lot of fat. You think of like meat and potato kind of food in this part of China. Very savory, very salty, very fatty. And that uh, pairs, I think, quite nicely with the more floral notes of, of the light aroma by Joe. Yeah, I noticed them both and they're they're both really nice on the nose. I mean, and and. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's not like when you're consuming baijiu, you're you're nosing it like a fine uh, chardonnay, right? You're you're generally taking it all in in a very small glass, like the ones that we have in front of us, and you're you're kind of shooting it. It's interesting, like tasting the the first one. So it's Jinmen. Jinmen Galion. Jinmen Galion. It's not pronounced the way it's spelled with the K's. Yeah, because it definitely doesn't look like that. Um, well, anyway, the when I when I smell it, you get a nice floral pleasing aroma mm-hmm. um and in a weird way and maybe this is because it's the most it reminds me of two things it reminds me of some of the grappa that i've had when i try it it's definitely grappa-esque i get a lot of absolutely that, mm-hmm. like that's chewy, a comparison i make all the time chewy flavor and it also reminds me of rum heads so like the very first part of the distillation because as a distillery you you sip and spit a lot of things but the flavor particularly on the finish reminds me a lot of very early on in the rum distillation, we're talking mm. like the first gallon, particularly right after you do your methanol cut. Mm-hmm. It's got all these big flavors that we don't necessarily want in our hearts portion, but you definitely get a lot of flavor similarities. Yeah. A little, kind of a, a, a little bit headsy, but like, it's funny, like when you hear that at a spirits judging context, you're like, oh, it's headsy. You're like, ah, let's dock that score. But in many contexts, like specifically in the Mezcal world and in some of uh, some of the Asian spirits traditions that I've encountered like that, that slate headsy aroma isn't really considered a flaw. Right. Yeah, that's actually um, like the very first uh, spirits competition I ever judged at. I was on a panel with uh, a Chinese uh, distiller, and like, after a few rounds of the competition, uh, a grappa distiller who was heading our panel like pulled me off to the side and said, "We've got this problem. You and the Baijiu distiller keep rewarding things that we're docking for having faults in them." And it it was one of those kind of wonderful moments of realizing, you know, we are looking fundamentally for different things in our spirits. It's crazy how often those conversations happen and have to happen at, in those contexts, because when people see these metals, they're like, Oh, someone with an impeccable palate, you know, has deemed this gold worthy. And it's like, no, like a bunch of regular people just sat around and argued about this for a while. And, and really the argument didn't stem so much about the quality per se. Sometimes it stemmed more about like the, like what our definitions are of like what is good and what is bad. So anyway, I think that's, it's helpful to have that mindset coming into tasting spirits that you're unfamiliar with, because one of the things that you and I talked about during our first interview was that it just seems like the expectations of what you're going to get flavor wise between China and the U S don't translate super well. And maybe that's something we can talk about with Ming river, especially when we get to that. Sure. And I mean, that's an important lesson I think for approaching Baijiu, but as you say, approaching any kind of spirit is that you have to learn the paradigm 
of what that liquor is and what the people who make it are trying to achieve. Um, and that, that's one of the reason why for, for many years now, um, I have always, when I introduce people to Baijiu, tried to have several different styles with me. Even when I'm, you know, introducing people to Ming River, which is the one that I, I sell, I want people to taste different products in the different styles of Baijiu, just so they like have a sense like this is the universe that is Baijiu, and this thing we sell, this is where it fits. Mm-hmm. The the Lao Baigan too is is uh, is d- certainly different enough from the light aroma mm-hmm. to me on the palate to be like, ooh, that is distinctly different. It's darker. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely more cereal notes for me. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, even though they are very close in form and function, I guess, uh, certainly, certainly legitimate enough differences for me to be like, all right, these are two different categories now in my brain. Yeah. So, I mean, of the Baijo we're tasting today, all but two of them come from different styles. So we're tasting seven of the 12 officially recognized uh, Baijo categories today. Mm -hmm. And, and you can definitely see the relationship between light aroma and uh, la bygone but they they are different enough as you say to be classified differently by by the chinese well this was i think a, a great pairing it really kind of transports me in my mind to like northern china where it's cold and you eat these sort of things and drink these sort of things which i think is the the point of this exercise so uh very excited to keep on going here and we'll be right back with the next pairing so we are back with the next pairing. But before we say what we're going to uh, be drinking and eating for this round, Derek, bring us back to the aroma question where we're talking about like, you know, like wafting in the glass of California cab while you're you know about to cut into that big porterhouse. Like it's not like that, is it in China? Uh, it's more like that than you would think. I mean, there's not the like stopping to like consider the aesthetic merits of the baijiu between every <laughs> like sip that you take. But because baijiu is quite an aromatic spirit, um, you will often have these glasses that are full to the brim in front of everyone at the table. You'll also usually have an open carafe of the baijiu on the table, and you can usually smell it in the way that you often praise a baijiu is by talking about how fragrant and interesting the and, and pleasing the fragrance is, which is my belief as to why Baijiu is classified technically according to its aroma or fragrance. That people, at least initially, you you are first struck by the smell of a Baijiu before before the taste. Yeah, and which is which is what makes it such a an exciting spirit to judge and equally complex as we were just mentioning, but, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's most people talk about drinking spirits, but really there does seem to be a dual aspect to Baijiu and that it is certainly meant to be enjoyed for the aroma first and foremost. And then there's the parability of that. It seems. So um, why don't you tell us what we're drinking and what we'll be um, enjoying with it for food. Okay. So, for this next one, we are continuing through kind of north-central China, a little bit west of where these drinks come from, to a province called Shanxi, uh, which is one of the older regions of China. It's famous for being uh, for the city of Xi'an, which is uh, the ancient capital of China and also kind of this wonderful Silk Road trading hub. So... There have been a lot of different influences from around the world on the food of uh, Shanxi, 
So um, in particular, uh, today there's a strong like uh, Central Asian uh, Muslim influence on the cooking there. So there's like a lot of like lamb and noodles and uh, kebabs, things of that nature. But like the food tends to also have a lot of spice to it that you don't get in other parts of Northern China. So what we're having today is a classic dish uh, called Liang Pi, which is uh, cold noodles with uh, just like some bean sprouts and some roasted tofu and a spicy, you know, little vinegary sauce. It's uh, just a really nice, refreshing dish. And we're pairing this with um, the most famous baijiu from Shanxi, which is a little west of Xi'an, uh, at a distillery called Xifeng, which means Western Phoenix. So the mm. style of baijiu that this falls into is called Phoenix aroma, and it's considered to be a hybrid between light and strong aroma baijiu, which is what we're going to taste next. So it's made from sorghum. It uses the same kind of chew that they use in certain styles of light aroma baijiu, which is made from barley and peas. And it is fermented in mud pits. But what's really unusual about this particular style of baijiu is that it's aged in what they call the seeds of alcohol, which are these big... Um, kind of like wicker baskets that are lined on the inside with paper that's and cloth that's been hardened with uh, beeswax and pig's blood. So it's this really unusual aging vessel that they keep the that they age the baijiu in for some time, and it gives it a slightly different character than the others. I with this one, I find it like on the nose to be like almost grape, grape like. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, which is time. kind of fun. Uh, again, maybe that comes from the, the same chew as light aroma, which has a lot of grappa notes. But I get almost like a like a oxidized wine aspect of this, like from the south of France, or sure, it's like very it's 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 grapey, but also sort of oxidized uh, oxidated. But, it's really cool. Um, very, or, or like a vinjon from like Jura region of France, very much so. Wow. You also get the same similarities between the third one, like in a similar aroma. You can definitely get the sorghum a lot. The sorghum note comes out through. But on the on the palate, um, it's got a much more like kind of like viscous, like almost like fruit leather type mm -hmm. type note to it. And the what what this style in particular is really notable for is these really really long expansive finishes that like change in your mouth as it's just sitting there and like you wait for it to end and it just doesn't. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's an unusual style. It seems appropriate to me that the Phoenix aroma seems to be a fusion of the light aroma and the strong aroma and the people and the culture of that province seems to be a fusion culture with a lot of comings and goings and influences from different culinary traditions around the world. So I think, you know, with the grows together, goes together type of cultural metaphor that we referenced earlier, I think this is yet another example of that that seems perfectly on point. The dish itself, just to describe to listeners what we're enjoying here, it's these very, very broad rice noodles uh, and the, the kind of a spongy tofu and that that slight slightly spicy slightly vinegary sauce i think maybe that might contribute at least with this particular pairing to that finish because you do have a little bit of anesthetic on the tongue from the spice yeah. which makes the baijiu hit slightly later and in a slightly different way which i think is a totally cool way to think about it 
uh, we talk about different the different architectures of a flavor experience, not just taste, not just flavor or, and aroma, but also the way that the spirit travels through your mouth, hitting different parts of your palate, and then as it even travels down your throat and warms different parts of your body. So when people talk to me about flavor, it's why I almost militantly insist that chemisthesis and spice and texture and, and all of the aspects of your flavor experience that are controlled by that trigeminal nerve are so crucial because without that, we couldn't have this conversation. Like this wouldn't be a thing that we could contextualize, but knowing the spice and knowing how the bijo, this bijo operates, it's fascinating to just break it down like this and like, where else are you going to get that? So that's, I'm just stoked to be here and doing this with you guys. Well, I mean, China, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where were, we're just as casual talk here as we wrap this up, where were you generally based when you were living in China? So I lived in China for seven years. The first five years I lived there, I was in uh, Shanghai, uh, which sadly is not much of a place with a Baijiu tradition. But uh, like most major cities in China, you get some of the best chefs from around the country that relocate there to open restaurants. Um, so you get good exposure to a lot of different parts of China. And then the last two years, I kind of lived in the biggest Baijiu producing region of China, which is uh, Sichuan province, which is where we will be tasting the next two Baijiu's from. I just have to say, um, so far, with the now this being the fourth that we've tasted, I thought this is my far, by far and away so far the best pairing in terms of the texture, because the finish on the Phoenix just, just goes and goes and goes, and with particularly with the food, because you get that numbing aspect that we're all talking about, it just yeah. plays so well, and it's just so pleasant of an experience. Well, I don't think it's a mistake that the most popular style of baijiu in China is strong aroma baijiu, which comes from Sichuan, with which is a cuisine that's famous for spice and particularly numbing spice mm -hmm. that kind of changes the way your palate interacts with the liquid. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, it's it's a really exciting flavor combination between baijiu and uh, spice. So what you're basically saying is for us to hold on, hold on to our seats, boys. We're going on an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly hope so. Yes. I do want it. There are two perfect segues here. So I'm just going to, I'm going to be a terrible podcast host and, and not take either of them because I want to ask, why do they call it Phoenix aroma? Like the obvious question is, well, what does a Phoenix smell like? Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> is there a justification behind Phoenix aroma as an, a moniker for that category? Yes, and it's a very boring explanation. Oh. That, that, that explanation <laughs> is uh, it, this distillery, West Phoenix, comes from a town called uh, Fengshang, which means Phoenix's flight. So it's named after the city. It's like uh, So it's like uh, Plymouth, yeah. Plymouth Gin? Yeah, basically. Cool. Well, I'm glad I I'm glad I passed up two perfectly good segues for that. So we're going to use this as a segue to reset, and we'll be right back with more Baijiu and food. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the Mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages and also browse their growing seafood selection. 
As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Your Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. All right, we are back, and we are here with sort of the uh, the anchor points of this lineup, which is Ming River Baijo, which is a strong aroma Baijo, as we've mentioned. And uh, Derek, you mentioned that you spent the last couple of years in China in the Sichuan province where this style of Baijo is made. What characterizes it um, specifically in uh, contrast to the Phoenix aroma that, uh, that we just tasted? Sure. So the main thing that you should be knowing about strong aroma Baijo is that it is traditionally fermented from sorghum. Both of the Baijos we're going to try are sorghum-based, though, though it can be distilled from sorghum mixed with other grains. It uses wheat-based chew, and there's two really unusual production techniques. One is what they call mud pit fermentation, where you're actually fermenting the grains for about two to three months at a time in sealed uh, mud pits. They're just, uh, they hold like 20 to 30 tons of grain. They're lined with river clay, and they ferment over and over again in these same pits without ever cleaning them so that they absorb the bacteria from the fermentation process and become part of the fermentation process over time. Uh, The other thing is what they call a continuous fermentation and distillation, which is achieved by when you, when you distill by Joe, you're doing this in what is essentially a giant steamer. So you can steam grains or distill them in the same device and they combine these processes by basically distilling the top layer of the pit, throwing that away, and then mixing in fresh grains with the lower levels that have more alcohol in them. So when you distill the fermented grains, you're actually steaming the grains you've just added, so thereby creating a fresh source of starch within the mash that you can take out of the still, add more of the chew, and then ferment it again. And so they do this with the same mash where they're using roughly 80% of the last batch over and over and over again for weeks, months, years. And in the case of our distillery, which is the oldest in China, hundreds of years. So the oldest fermentation pits and mashes that they have there are from 1573. Mm -hmm. I think there's, we did some math or something. It was like when Shakespeare was like nine years old. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was definitely uh, from the lifetime of Shakespeare. And it's, yeah, it's kind of crazy to think of the distillery having that, you know, access to flavors that they started developing at that time. But um, really cool. And it allows you to create blends of different Baijos from different pits where you can combine very young pits uh, you know, distillates with those from very old pits. And um, we're kind of lucky that we have Ming River and this other Baijo, Zisha, uh, which is from the Lujo Lajiao distillery. And you can taste how those different blends affect the flavor. So there's a couple things. Uh, I mean, Brett, did, did any of that remind you of Dunder? Oh, very much. I, I see there's a lot of parallels with rum, particularly Maybe these crazy long fermentations and you're always adding to it. It also kind of reminds me of some of 
in some ways, at least, how in certain places in Mexico where they make rum, they'll have continual fermentation. It's kind of like Paranubis, where they'll crush all the cane, start the fermentation, and then when they distill it, they only remove half of it. So they're always topping up, and that way they don't ever have to pitch yeast, and they're just using whatever's there. So this continual, continuous fermentation is just, I mean, it's incredible, because since it's been doing this for so long, it's got just like families and families and families of all these bacteria that have just lived in that area. Like the sense of place is so strong. You know, that terroir yeah, is it's, so strong. It's like, yeah, oh, the, the, the world's oldest living organism is some like whale shark somewhere. It's like, no, I think the world's oldest living organism is like this pit. <laughs> <laughs> the colony right there, right? You know? uh, yeah, and I think to me what's romantic about that is this sense of DNA, the sense of heritage, the yeah. sense of being connected with the people who were consuming this before you, it, it really, um, I don't know, there, it really kind of bends your brain in a little bit, in, in a way that makes you feel connected with something bigger than yourself, which I think is a nice side effect of enjoying f- food from particular cultures. But here, it's so process-based. It's so like important to the way the spirit is made. It's inseparable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was just, we just had a, a podcast with David Wondrich where I got to talk to him about his article, Plato and Aristotle walk into a bar. And he was talking about how with certain cocktails, the process is inseparable from the product. If you change the process, it's just not that cocktail anymore. And it seems like for this, it's like, no, you change that pit. Like you're like, it's okay to start from scratch. It is very feasible to start from scratch, but it will not be this thing then. It will not have that mother sauce that has been sitting there for accruing flavor like an infinity or a Solaris, an infinity bottle or a Solaris system would be the closest thing I can compare it to. Sure. And if you look at the Baijiu we just tried, the Phoenix Aroma, the Phoenix Aroma is fermented in mud pits in, in a similar way, but their mud pits are cleaned like once a year. So it's not a like buildup of this, this pit over time. And uh, you you can tell they it they don't have the same like kind of funky umami notes that you get out of baijo. They actually call in strong aroma baijo the more like earthy uh, tasting notes. The they call that the like the pit flavor. Whereas the fruitier, uh, more like tropical notes that you get in the strong aroma baijo um, are are more common to younger mashes and younger pits. Now that brings the question: What is the youngest pit? Actually, at um, where Ming River's made. So the youngest pits are going to be... Um, with Strong Aroma Baijiu, they usually won't use a pit that hasn't been uh, conditioned for at least three years. Okay. But that's considered like not capable of you know, being true to the style. So um, with Ming River, most of the pits that they use to ferment that are about 20 to 30 years okay. old. So a younger product... But again, this just goes down to local taste. Um, it's made in the same, both of these products are going to be made in the exact same way. Uh, there might be some older pits in the Zisha, but the older pit flavor is going to be one that is maybe more sought after in China, but might not be as appropriate for a new Baijiu drinker. Gotcha. Which is exactly what we should be talking about right now because you designed Ming River specifically for. A Western palette. And that means a couple of things. Uh, one thing right off the bat to notice is that the ABV is a little bit more reasonable than some of the, the big bombs that we have on the table in front of us. 
um, which certainly encourages mixing in cocktails, something mm-hmm. that you and your team do an excellent job with. You teamed up with Shannon Mustafer, who's a past guest, to do some really fun, uh, almost tiki-style cocktails with the Ming River. And um, uh, so aside from the lower ABV and the more cocktail focused use, like what are some of the other considerations in designing a Baijiu that is specifically targeted towards a Western palate? Well, it's funny because I would say in China, the most, as you'll see from the products we're tasting today, like 52, 53% alcohol by volume is a very normal strength um, and pretty average. Our distillery, most of their products are bottled at either 38% or 52%. And the 38% is actually more popular when we go out with the distillers at Lujo Lajau. We settled on something that was in the middle because, uh, you know, it's, for one, it's it's cheaper to export a lower ABV product. But also, we didn't want to make it so light that it wouldn't stand up in a cocktail and, and contribute something. But the way that we did it was not necessarily telling them, like, change your production style, do this differently. We worked really closely with the master blender at the distillery, and she gave us, you know, uh, four different samples, basically A, B, C, and D, that each highlighted a different part of the flavor profile of a strong aroma by Joe. And we just took those to some of our bartender friends in New York and had them do a taste test blind. And, you know, we took the feedback we got from that and then the distiller designed four more. So if, you know, they said 50% said they liked A the most and 50% said they liked D the most, we worked really honing in on the A and D and like getting narrower and now narrower in what flavor profiles we were trying to highlight there. there there's a lot you can do with the thousands of different raw distillates that they have at that distillery um, yeah. to create a unique blend. Now, what kind of aging, if any, is associated with this? Because like in a Western perspective, for example, we tend to think of you know old things as being aged or put away in a barrel or something like this. But can you talk a little bit more about how once it's distilled, the process? I know, I know you may have covered this in the last podcast. No, I'm uh, happy great. to. So um, at our distillery, they age... Mostly in terracotta uh, clay jars, um, not so unlike what this bottle is. Um, sure, sure. But uh, in caves. So uh, the caves that they age this in, they're right near the river. And this creates both like high humidity within the cave. So you have minimal evaporation, uh, but also you get this really interesting uh process again a connection with the place where algae grows all over the the clay cool. jars and so the, the air going in and out of this is filtered another process through <laughs> another living organism local to the region that is wild that is so wild it's it's funny being from such a sterile place <laughs> <laughs> like i remember i went to just just to Burgundy, you know, like it's a place where Americans are like, oh yeah, wine comes from there. I went into this cellar and there was black mold like this thick growing on like three or four inches thick on everything to the point where you couldn't hear somebody talking like 20 feet away because of the sound absorbing properties of it. And so it's just fun to go to some of these places and realize like, oh yeah, like what is in the U.S. is not necessarily the norm anywhere. 
let alone everywhere. It's like there's, it's, it's great to hear these stories because it really does, it it enhances to me the transportive aspect of the, uh, of the spirit and pairing wise, what we have is uh, a dish that I was prepared to not like, because it's one of the very few things I don't like it's eggplant, but this is just a beautifully must've been marinated in some like magical way (laughs) and stewed perfectly because it's got a great texture um, not crazy spicy or anything, um, but a lot of flavor. And then we also have a, a rabbit dish as well. So, yeah, what we're eating, um, the eggplant is a classic Sichuanese dish called Yuzhong Tietza, literally a fish fragrant eggplant. There is no fish in this. It's mostly just made with a um, garlic kind of chili oil sauce. And these two dishes show off very different sides of Sichuanese cuisine mm-hmm. that I think... The rabbit dish is what a lot of people think of first and foremost. It's got a lot of uh, Sichuan peppercorn in it. It's got some uh, chili oil. It's got some peanuts. It's very, very numbingly spicy, but also quite delicate and lovely. And then with the eggplant, you get the less spicy side of it, like the, the part that focuses more on like raw chili and ginger and just really nice kind of bright flavors that aren't overwhelmingly spicy, but again, pair really great with the baijo. And, and I think you'll already see already with this second baijo from the same distillery, what I was talking about, where the tropical fruit notes are tuned almost all the way down, mm-hmm. and the more like savory, umami, like licorice notes oh, are yeah. dominant. Yeah, what's this like, Brett? It's reminding me of something, something herbal. Um, Kind of reminds me of uh, like chartreuse and other things of that nature, I guess. A little bit, yeah, but it's still that pineapple. So with the Ming River, like pineapple is like the big note, like maybe somewhere between fresh and stewed, like maybe just a really ripe pineapple that's starting to get a little bit brown is the way I think about it. And here you get that. You get it almost immediately in the second one. What's what's the name of the second one that we're Uh, tasting in? The uh, Zusha. I, I believe purple clay. Okay and kind of a purplish clay bottle they've got there. But yeah, it goes right into like much more savory and, and you're right, almost the anisette. Yeah, it reminds me of like a bit of an anisette. Like a, it reminds me of a cocktail that was made in an absinthe rinse glass in a certain respect. Yeah, like it's yeah, got that light, see that light anise, but not to the point where you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm sipping on Uzo. It, it honestly, like the finish reminds me of just, you know, kind of being on like the Mediterranean coast, Southern France, uh-huh. you're getting a lot of those licorice. Pastis. Pastis, definitely. I'm, yeah. You're getting, um, <clears throat> in some ways, like I'm almost getting like, like a hint of like honey-esque with that anise. So it mm. kind of reminds me of like the finish of like a drambouille or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely getting like that herbal heather kind of note. Oh, see, look at this guy. This guy, this guy flavors right here. Uh, anything else uh, uh, about the uh, the Szechuan culinary style that we should keep in mind? Um, is there, are there are there any hallmarks in the U.S. of like really good authentic Szechuan food that that consumers should look for? Absolutely, yeah. So there's uh, a few uh, Szechuan dishes that you're going to find pretty much everywhere um, around the U.S. that are great, wonderful representatives of these two different like pathways: the both the, the spiciness. And the kind of more laid back, subtle flavors. There's the mapo tofu is the go-to Sichuanese spicy dish. You have dry fried green beans, usually with like a fermented like bean 
of some kind or some minced pork is is very nice. Uh, this the fish fragrant eggplant. There's also this preparation is uh, done with like uh, shredded pork a lot. That's okay. quite nice, or more of a pork mince. And then a hot pot. You know, just a spicy hot pot is classic Sichuanese. Like a really really good way to drink baijiu is next to a bubbling cauldron of chili oil i know i now know exactly what i'm gonna do when it gets cold i'm just gonna invite a bunch of friends over we're gonna have hot pot and drink a bottle of baijiu and just to chat it's gonna be fantastic because i mean this would just work so well with so many of those like trigeminal flavors that you get yeah, how yeah. The, the spices will be some numbing aspect and it'll just play so differently and the finish on this is still so long it's almost not it's not as long as say like the phoenix but it's yeah. it's there so i think that would just be so much fun and, I mean, if you don't like spice as much, um, something that's a little more muted in its spice level, um, uh, gong bao ji ding, or what we call in America, kung pao chicken. Yep. It's, a, it's another uh, Sichuanese classic. Amen. Uh, so, Derek, just remind us the best way to get Ming River Baijiu here in the U.S. So, if they don't carry it in your local uh, liquor store, uh, shopmingriver.com uh, will ship to most parts of the U.S., um, so that's your best bet. Awesome. And uh, can confirm, can recommend, and uh, we will be right back with the next lineup item. All right, we're back with a very culinary sounding aroma, sauce aroma by Joe. And we're going to be enjoying a nice dish of flounder with pickled cabbage here, which is something I'm excited about. I love flounder and this looks really, really nicely prepared. Uh, Derek, tell us a little bit about sauce aroma and where it's from. So sauce aroma comes from a town called Maotai in uh, Guizhou province. And Maotai is actually only about 50 miles east of Luzhou, where strong aroma baijiu comes from. So uh, there's definitely certain similarities between the two styles and how they're made, but uh, very, very different baijos. Um, so sauce aroma baijo is fermented about eight times over the course of one year in stone pits. And it uses a continuous fermentation process where you're fermenting and distilling the same mash over and over again, like a strong aroma baijo, but you're only adding in fresh grains the first two cycles. So the last you know, six fermentations, you're working with an increasingly lower amount of alcohol and an increasingly cooked mash. So the result is a very, very umami flavored mm -hmm. baijo um, that's, you know, got some smokiness to it. Um, but, you know, it's every flavor of the umami rainbow. It's you know, yeah. sesame, nuts, soy sauce, mushroom, cheese. It's like all... All in there at the same time. So a couple follow-ups on that. Stone pits. Is it like pits lined with stone or is it actually like chiseled out of stone? It's stone bricks. So, okay. Uh, yeah. It's like masonry. a whole dug out of the ground that's lined with brick. Okay. And then the other follow-up was, um, I'm glad you clarified about the, um, the, the fermentation because I was going to say like, all right, well, if they're not then adding fresh ingredients after the first two fermentations what distinguishes the next four and it seems like there's the the, the cooking that that steaming process that, that you mentioned is is kind of in there right well there's a couple of different ways that um, the fermentation process is different than uh, strong aroma one is like I said you're not 
the the pit itself is not part of the process it's just a container for the for the mash um, but the other thing they do that's pretty unusual with this style of baijiu is that they start fermentation outside of the pit so what they do is they mix the chew and the baijiu together and they let it sit out on the floor of the factory for about two days until you can actually see the microorganisms forming in the mash and then they bury the the, the mash so um piling fermentation is is not super common in the baijiu world but it is in this style the other thing is that the fermentation period is a bit shorter so it's about a month at a time whereas uh strong arm is two to three months sure but it seems like they they kind of um they kind of work the system to get the most bang out of that shorter fermentation exactly but this particular style of baijiu um uses a wheat-based chew like strong aroma, but it's a wheat-based chew that's produced at a higher temperature. So the microorganisms inside it are more heat resistant and there's less yeast inside of it. So they actually have to use quite a bit more of the chew in, in the fermentation process than a strong aroma baijiu does. It's so interesting to, to hear, and, and it's very difficult for me to picture, to be honest, because I've never done a tour at one of these baijiu places obviously i've never been to china and it's difficult to picture but as you describe these different hacks of the system that these different distilleries use it just makes so much sense to me that the outcomes are going to be so wildly different as the ones that we have in front of us and i really like the pairing here because the fish is delicate and buttery and the the pickled cabbage is not it's it doesn't have it's not like um super vinegary like Japanese style pickle that you'd be from like a pickled daikon for example or a pickled ginger it's a much it's a more delicate pickle that's not as intensely acetic in its aroma and I think that it's it's a really nice little spine to have on this huge umami bomb because you you know what do you see when you make a cocktail like if you're making a, a very sweet if you're making a cocktail with multiple sweet ingredients there's almost always an acid there to balance it out so it makes sense to me that we're in the pickly space here, the flounder is delicious and is a good blank canvas for both the that that slight tang and then the huge umami bomb of the um, of the baijiu to kind of come in and, and play with against one another. Well, the reason I picked it is because the food in Guizhou um, tends to be very spicy. It still has a lot of that um, Sichuan peppercorn that you get okay. in Sichuanese food, but it also works a lot more with sour flavors. But one of the most famous dishes in Guizhou is like a sour, like fish soup. So um, this is, you know, the the closest thing I saw on the menu to that. But since we still have, uh, you know, a bit of that Sichuan peppercorn tingle from the last dish in our mouths, I think the sour uh, and the fish and the sauce aroma by Joao go really well together. Totally. Brett, what do you think? I completely understand why it's called sauce aroma. I mean, because obviously you smell it and every, every umami, anything that you've ever smelled once you're smelling in this glass. Yeah. It's, it's, a li- it's a little bit absurd how yeah, you crazy. can, you, how you can pick out each one. You're like, all right, I'm going to go find mushroom. It's almost like you, you come up for your air and you're like, all right, I'm going to go dive down and get this flavor now. And you can find it. Oh, completely. Now, now, now look for uh, like literally chocolate just- and coffee. And you get it like, oh, a, yeah, yeah like chicory if prim, almost. If I prime you to, if I prime you for any of the words that you'd associate with umami, you're going to, cause as soon as you said mushroom, I smelled that in forest forest. As soon as you said that, I smelled chocolate. I smelled everything else. Yeah. 
um, like I'm, I'm smelling like sesame, like mm-hmm. like toasted sesame seeds. And the specific sauce that the name refers to is soy sauce. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There, there is no soy in this, but the, the smell is oh, quite reminiscent. Completely. And you get like the strong soy sauce, like if you're at the, like an H Mart or something and you're looking in that aisle with all the different types of, um, which, you know, again, there's so many different types of soy sauce, but you're, you're getting everything in that. So the big question I had, because he, he uh, so Eric mentioned cocktails. If we were going to say hypothetically make a cocktail with this Maotai, mm-hmm. where would you go? Like, what would, what would you <laughs> That's recommend? That's a great question. Like, how would I do that? Why? I have this. I need to make a cocktail, like, in the next 10 minutes. I so can find I, I'm going to go ahead and plug a friend, Ulrich Nies, um, a lovely Belgian bartender who made me my favorite sauce aroma by Joe cocktail of all time. And it was basically a riff on a whiskey sour with a super, super peaty scotch. I think it was like a Lefroig. Um, but he, he mixed in with there and in for whatever reason, that kind of like cut against mm. the, the umami notes in, in a very pleasing way. Um, but I've also seen Maotai used in a lot of like more dessert style cocktails. Okay, yeah, like see that cream chocolate. Um, like you could make a very delicious, I think, uh, Maotai milkshake. Mm-hmm. I'm also thinking like this has similar notes to like an Amontillado sherry, and you don't see Amontillado used very often in the cocktail space at all. You're mostly seeing uh, like the Manzanilla and the Finos and uh, like the sweeter, dessertier ones used most often. But I've been craving more cocktails with Amontillado is my favorite style of sherry just because it's to me the most bizarre. But uh, yeah, I, I see this fitting in in that flavor space as well. So we, we make a uh, we make a, a coffee rum. So it has chocolate shells and coffee in it. And I'm really excited when I go back to play around with using that and some of this um, Thai to see what I can come up with that, like a dessert style cocktail. It's going to be yeah. so fun. I think you have something there with the milkshake idea. Well, we're approaching the conclusion here. We, I think we're doing <laughs> remarkably well considering how much we've had and, and uh, how complicated this was to pull off. But we'll be right back with our next duo. All right. For our last pairing, we have an extra strong aroma baijo here. And uh, I'll be honest, Derek, when I was nosing this just now, it kind of reminds me of the Ming River a little bit. I get like some of those pineapple-y kind of high notes, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's just because we came off of that sauce aroma, which is so funky that it's more of like a contrast thing. But it, it, at least on the nose, it reminds me a little bit of the, the Szechuan style. Yeah, it definitely has more of a... Like, it has more natural sweetness to it. One of the things, the way that this style is described, this is actually a fairly new style in the world of Baijiu. I think it was only invented in the last several decades. And it's made at this distillery called Jogwe in um, Hunan province, which is one east of Guizhou. So if we're moving west, east, Sichuan, Guizhou, Hunan. And this particular style was invented by someone whose experience was at the Lujo Laojiao distillery. That's where she learned her blending. So there's definitely an influence there. And they say, for example, there's a style that's called mixed aroma that incorporates elements of strong and sauce aroma baijiu. This uh, fuyu or like extra strong uh, aroma baijiu, they say, incorporates elements of three styles of baijiu. So light strong and sauce 
Ooh, I can kind of get some of that light aroma. It's been a while. Like it, it's been a quite a journey here. <laughs> yes. So it's been a while since light aroma. But now that you say that, I'm getting some of those slightly grainier. It is a little funky too on the nose. Like there's a little stank on it. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a super, super funky. This is this is one of the funkier badges we're going to be tasting today. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Wow. There's an intensity to this that is not like the intensity of any of these others. And it's not crazy high proof, is it? It's only 52%, which is not you know, com- compared to the uh, the Lao Baigon at 67. I mean, it's that's peanuts. Um, wow. Wh- wh- how would you describe that? I, I, I'm at a loss for words right now. Well, you get this kind of like almost like rubbery note. Oh yeah, they're, oh, yeah, they're in the middle, like like almost like you know pencil rubber, like in the middle on top of. It does have like a he, really striking middle middle palate experience. They're just like it's like a it's flash paint that is going off in your mouth. Wow, like, yeah. that is crazy. Uh, I don't know if it's my favorite per se, but it's it does it it does. Tend like it, it mellows out to more of that like licorice like mm-hmm. pit note that you get from like particularly like this the the second strong aroma that we tasted today. Yeah. Um, but the way that this is made is quite unusual. Whereas they're using actually two different types of chew. So they're using the the mash itself is a blend of five grains. So it's sorghum, rice, sticky rice, weed, and corn. The uh, mash is first sacrified with like the starches are converted to sugars with small chew, and then they fermented in pits with big chew. So you're using two different styles of chew to perform different functions, and yeah, it's uh, super unusual, like peculiar style of baijiu. But the the region that this baijiu comes from and the reason. That we've selected here, we've got like uh, pork with uh, like hot peppers, is because this style of cuisine, Hunan food, is known for dry spice, which is going to be like none of the numbing Sichuan peppercorns, and all like really strong on the chili peppers, which yeah. were first introduced to that region, I think, I don't know, like three or four hundred years ago by the Portuguese. Okay. Yeah. Interesting that like because you when when you think of chili peppers, at least uh, I am I am a slight enthusiast in that I have twenty super hot chilies growing right outside this <laughs> this condo. But when I think of them, I think of them as originating in China. But there's two different types of there's there's like basically two different families of the chili pepper, I guess genus or family or whatever um, phylogenetic level we're talking here. And one of them is definitely like the it's like more of a Chinese thing, and then there's there's another one that's less that's not not from there. But uh, I think of them as being as more originating in China. But it's interesting, you know, as you talk about these spirits and these cuisines, like you have to talk about the intersections with essentially colonialism. You know, that's how that that part of history. You know, we were t- we were talking about Shakespeare earlier. He wrote the Tempest about people getting shipwrecked on an island and there's, you know, like there's, that's at the time when they were starting to explore the Virginia colony and stuff like that. And so, and and then, you know, it, around that same time, we have the Portuguese who are actually getting to that, that part of the world, um, you know, China and the other countries over there. So I, I think there's a lot of value in talking about 
the intersection there too, just to give yourself that historical seating. Um, you know, it, we've tasted so many here that I find it difficult. You know, it would take me years and years to become an expert in any one of these categories, but I think it's a good stand in instead of going for expertise, you should seek for context. And I think that really helps with the huge variety here. At least if you can get that one little context point, you're like, all right, extra strong, Hunan, spicy food, fun fact, Portuguese. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, you've got uh, like the, the Lujo Laoja distillery where Ming River comes from. That's from 1573. You can see, like, in the history of the development of that style of Baijiu, like, very different stages of Chinese history, where you've got the Ming Dynasty, which is very much um, a reaction to Mongol invasion of China. And right before the foreigners showed up again during the Qing Dynasty, introduced European uh, ingredients and colonization. I mean, even uh, the grain that we use for most of uh, Chinese baijiu sorghum. This is not an indigenous crop in China. It came through trade routes with Africa and India over hundreds and thousands of years. So what you see, not just in Chinese food and Chinese alcohol, is the you know patterns of human migration and interaction over time. And uh, I, I feel that we're all much richer for having those interactions. So. Right. Well, and especially because the zeitgeist right now is that China seems to be a place that's off limits to the, at least Americans, right? We're sort of like, you know, there's the, there's the, the, the sort of uh, stigma of COVID. And there's also the fact that our governments don't get along well right now. So it seems like they are this very closed off nation at this particular moment with this particular zeitgeist. But if you just go back a few years, especially in the large sweep of the distilling tradition in China, like it's very, very different at any given point in history. Oh, I mean, absolutely. That's that that is certainly the case. I, I think it's it's a weird moment in history right now. I wouldn't read too much into like I, we right now we're closed to European travelers, for mm -hmm. example, and uh, I don't view Europe as our big geostrategic adversary but um yeah certainly in a low point of like international political relations between our countries i think it's important to seek out these opportunities to connect with the culture and remember like the actual you know human connections that can be forged between people and cultures and and really seek to have a more nuanced understanding than you're, you're getting in newspapers, for example. Right. Brett, what do you, what's your take on this incredibly intense, uh, extra strong? Well, let me pour myself some more. I obviously like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I kept, you know, as you said, you keep searching for what you're trying to experience and like, you try to understand what this is and it just gets more and more complex. Like halfway through the, the tasting experience, when you're sipping on it, it just explodes into something else. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because when I smell it, I get, it, it, it almost reminds me, I mean, I do, I'll, I'll definitely pick up a notes from like say Ming River and a straw aroma. And then I also, when it sits and breathes a little bit, the umami part opens up. I get like this nuttiness. I get like a, the pencil eraser that you're talking about. And then actually after it was, that's why I kept smelling my glass after it was finished. It, it, it continued to develop into something completely different in the glass. 
So when I think about this particular pairing with the spicy pork and, and the, the spicy peppers, it reminds me of a wine pairing, a very particular wine pairing motif, which is when you eat spicy food, you want to put a really intense, like generally a high acid white wine, like a, like a crazy high acid Sauvignon Blanc mm-hmm. with spicy food. And to me, this is kind of like that, but it's even more because the str- it being a spirit, a distillate, as opposed to a ferment, it's got way more punch, this, this extra strong aroma than a wine does. And in addition to that, then it just, it just beats up your palate in, <laughs> in a way that you're like, all right, so stay with me here. I ran cross country in high school and I got shin splints pretty much immediately. And I remember this one experience where I had this, uh, this amazing coach. She was a very petite woman and she told me to lay down on the ground and she basically put her entire body weight on my feet such that the soles of my feet were touching the ground. So like stretch, stretching out the, whatever was causing these shin splints, it was very unnatural. It was some of the most intense pain I've ever experienced, but also some of the most intense relief and pleasure. And for some reason, like the intensity of this extra strong aroma is just like, it's, it's like, it's a hurt so good thing because it's, it's a little bit unnatural, but it hurts real good. We're definitely into eighth round of Bidro conversation. Just wild, wild, like hang on to your seat kind of experience here with this. And it paired really well with the spice because like this is hitting you with the heat and you've got the, the savoriness of the pork and, and the peppers. But then this is just blowing any of those flavors out and say, hey, I'm here. It's like like it's like the Kool-Aid man kicking down the door. Yeah, very, yeah Kool-Aid man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And we do need to make a note. I, I hope that folks get to uh, visit the show notes page. We'll probably try and feature this bottle when we promote it on social media. But this is a, a very strange looking bottle. It's like ceramic. <laughs> it looks like a sack of grain tied up. This, it's funny, it's not that style, but this is very much like what those um, seas of alcohol with the Phoenix aroma, uh-huh. this is what those aging vessels kind of look like. Really? Yeah. Um, we do have a lot of very different shaped bottles here on the table. So like I said, we'll uh, we'll have lots of pictures over on the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Um, the last thing I want to say before we wrap this up is that this tasting was done just casually by normal people. Brett did have to take a special trip to New York. I, where went, to, I went to Ocean Wine and Spirits um, just right off of Chinatown. So we'll, we'll link to them in the show notes because they have a very good selection uh, as was recommended by Derek and his team. Cash only though for the Baijiu. Cash only for the Baijiu. Uh, that's a good note. Don't want to show up and I don't think they accept Venmo. So it, this was a very doable and we just sourced it from a very good admittedly, but a local Chinese spot. So this is something that you as a listener could do at home. You could do a smaller version of it. You don't have to do as many as we did, but, uh, but this is doable. And I hope that folks out there actually do this because we learned so much just from tasting these. And it's great to have an amazing guide like Derek here to, to kind of shepherd us through the process and give us some of the, the inside details. But these are styles. You might not be able to find these bottles where you are, but you can probably find a bottle of a style like this. So I, I guess my, my, my note is you should really freaking do this. That's exactly what I'm going to do because I have a bottle of Ming, Ming, uh, Ming River at the house. I have all these bottles or whatever makes it back because um, they're very good. And as soon as it gets cold, I'm doing hot pot. I'm inviting friends over. Let's drink Ming River. Let's pair it with this experience. And let's just celebrate this this, this cultural achievement that we're able to do easily. 
Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I've been involved with Ming River and we work with a lot of bars. We make a lot of cocktails with the Baijo. But really, for me, this is how I fell in love with Baijo as a category. Just sitting around with some friends, some good food, drinking, enjoying, and, and having a good time with each other. Yeah, doing the hard work of tasting and, and comparing. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh it's 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 also joyful work though. So, um, Derek, thank you so much. Uh, can you just remind us how to get in touch with you and Ming River digitally? Sure. So, um, Ming River M I N G River dot com is our website. Um, Ming River Baijo on most social media, and um, you can reach out to me if you have Baijo questions. Derek at drinkbaijo.com. Baijo is spelled with two I's, B-A-I-J-I-U. Um, a lot of people forget the second I, so mm-hmm. it's important. All right. And Brett, I hear that you tend to be found most often at a little distillery in St. Michael's. How do folks go find you there? Oh, easy. Uh, if you want to find the distillery first off, it's Lion Rum, L-Y-O-N Rum, um, at Lion Rum, Instagram. We have other social medias, but lionrum.com as well. For me personally, you can find me Brett Steigerwalt. If you can spell my last name, that's a, that's a start, but I'll help you, S-T-E-I-G-E-R-W-A-L-D-T. Uh, on Instagram, uh, I am at almost underscore Icarus. Don't want to be Icarus, you almost want to be there. Yep, you want to, um, you want to fly high, but you yeah, don't want to fly too high. and you'll see, you know, the, the, my, my life and all the fun stuff that we get to do. It's not as cultivated as other people's. It's kind of raw, which is fine. That's kind of my style, but yeah. uh, that's where you can find me. Awesome, man. Well, thank you both for joining me for this. Um, doing all of the legwork to make it happen. I just did the talking work and, and the uh, the Uber Eats work. So I think I got the I got the good end of this. And uh, for all of you listening out there, thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. 
excellent Baijo insights and bottles, courtesy of Brett Steigerwalt and Derek Sandhouse, and a little bit of takeout ordering, noodle slurping, interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.